Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Lord, Bless us with your word today. Open our hearts to, to hear from you. Lord, and use me to speak your word, not as coming from me, but as coming from you, Lord. That let your word speak through me and not just my thoughts or opinions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The world is broken. Probably doesn't take much to convince you of that, especially right now. Everyone recognizes it. Believers, unbelievers, everybody sees that there's something wrong with the world. Even before this virus came around, everyone has seen the brokenness of the world. Everyone's felt it. There's pain and suffering and death in the world. Sickness and poverty, war, oppression, loneliness, anxiety, death. It's all around us. And now with this pandemic, we see it even more clearly. We're mostly stuck in our homes with not many places we're allowed to go. We see that many people have gotten sick from the virus. Thousands, tens of thousands have died. We're cut off from each other physically. We are not able to gather together as a church and meet together, encourage one another and worship God together. We feel very deeply the truth 
that the world is broken. It's not as it should be. But how should we think about it? How should we respond to the state of the world? In our passage in Romans this morning, we see that we recognize the brokenness of the world. But also it shows us that we have a glorious hope for the future. Start in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul here is setting up a comparison between suffering and glory. And he says, I consider, I count, I reckon it. He's saying, I've looked, I compared, I've counted it up, added it all up, weighed it on the scales, and the, the suffering that we're going through now is, just doesn't compare with the glory that's coming. Let me illustrate this with maybe a slightly silly illustration related to sports. Sports fans like to compare things, compare Teams, my team is better than your team. This player is better than that player. There's especially debates about, you know, who's, who's the best player ever, right? Is Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds or, you know, Joe Montana or Tom Brady or in basketball, Michael Jordan. Some people will say LeBron James. And if you compare those two, you can compare them and look at their strengths and weaknesses, if they have any weaknesses, and come up with arguments for why one or the other is the better basketball player. And there may be an answer. There might even be a clear answer. But it's worth comparing. You can put them next to each other, and you can look at them, and they're comparable. right? But if instead you compare Michael Jordan to Tim Svensson, that's not going to go as well, right? It's not worth comparing. You can't put my basketball skills on the same scale as Michael Jordan's basketball skills. It just doesn't compare. All right. And that's, that's the way that Paul is arguing here. There's just no comparison between the weight of the suffering on one hand and the weight of the glory on the other hand. The suffering is just far outweighed by the glory that is to come. And ultimately, that's the conclusion of this passage that we're reading now. This isn't, you know, the, the basic building block that we're going to build up on. This is the conclusion that we're building to. Paul sort of argues backwards a little bit here. He starts with the conclusion, and then he shows you the foundation under it. And if you look at the verses that are going to follow, you see they're linked one to the other. For is the word that is often coming between the verses. This is true for or because this is true. This for that. For, 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 because. It's like a chain all linked together or like cinder blocks building on each other the foundation of a house. 
And as we keep going, we see that he's linking from the very beginning. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The emphasis is very strong here on the the longing, the waiting of the creation. The New American Standard Bible translates it a little bit more literally. It says, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It's repetitive. It makes the anxious longing the subject of the sentence. It's the central thing here is that the longing of creation It's creation is being personified here as eager and waiting for that which is coming after. And what is that? It says, the revealing of the sons of God. So who, who is the sons of God here? If you go back just a couple of verses to verse 14, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If we look ahead to verse 29, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, many sons of God. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's the firstborn of the sons of God. That is, we who are believers in Jesus, are the sons of God. So in verse 18, we said, there's a glory that's going to be revealed to us. Now in verse 19, we see that the thing that is going to be revealed is us. The sons of God are going to be revealed. So why is that? Why is the revealing of the sons of God, of us, the glorious thing? Read on to the next verses and see. Verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, we have the word for linking each step along the way. He's building his argument. And he says now that the creation was subjected to futility. The creation is not achieving its full intended purpose. It's broken. We could trace this back almost all the way to the beginning. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, which Steve read for us this morning. We're not going to read through it now, but Adam and Eve were created and placed in the Garden of Eden with everything they could possibly have needed, given one command by God, and they sin and rebel against God and against his command. And as a result, God puts a curse on them and on the creation, which Steve read for us a little while ago. God says there's going to be enmity between mankind and the serpent who deceived them. He says there's going to be pain in childbirth. He curses the ground so that there will be difficulty for man now in 
working the ground and producing food for himself. And this isn't just for Adam and Eve, but for all of their descendants after us, every one of us. Because of the sin of Adam and in him all of mankind, the creation is cursed by God, subjected to futility, as Paul puts it. The world is broken. It's all, it's all gone wrong. At the beginning of the creation, God is making things. He says, let there be, and it, and it was, and God says that it was good. But now things are not good. There's pain, there's death. And this characterizes the whole time period from the fall, from Adam and Eve's sin, the entrance of sin into the world, until now. And every one of Adam's and Eve's descendants participate in that sin. We're all guilty of that sin. We've fallen in Adam. We inherit his sinful nature. And every one of us participates in and continues in the sin. All of us are complicit in the rebellion against God. And if we trace the whole story of Scripture from the beginning to the end, we see that it's all one big story of God's creating and redeeming his people. And we could go over that at length or quickly. And the, the shortest way we can sum it up is with four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God created the world and it was good. Man sinned against God and creation is plunged into brokenness and death. And then Christ, God in the flesh, comes to redeem his people. He comes, he's born, he's crucified, he's dead, buried. He remains dead in the grave for three days. And then he's resurrected on the third day, ascended up to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. Redemption. And then he's going to come back to earth and restore everything. Set the world back to right. Redeem his people. Restore the creation. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So ever since the fall, the whole creation has been experiencing brokenness and death from the first day to now and continuing forward until the final restoration. So when Paul says the sufferings of this present time, he means this present time history since the fall. Until the restoration when Christ returns to reign on the earth. <clears throat> and we see here the reality and the weight of what's wrong with the world. It's broken. It is not good. Paul says, subject to futility, bondage to corruption. When we experience suffering, difficulty, death, oppression... We're not experiencing the world as it was created. It's not what the world and what we were made for, ultimately. 
And so when we experience these things, it troubles and upsets us. And it should. There's a tendency sometimes among us Christians, especially us Christians who believe that God is in control over everything and who has a plan and it's ultimately a good plan. And sometimes we can respond by minimizing a little bit the way that things are not good. We can respond maybe a little bit flippantly to suffering. We'll say things like, well, God is working everything together for good, right? It's all part of God's good plan. And that's true. But we can't just leave it there. If we just say it like that and leave it there, it makes it sound like these sufferings and difficulties aren't really a big deal. This isn't something that's really that bad. But that's not true. Suffering and death are intruders in the good creation of God. It's here because of sin, as a result of our sin. The suffering and grief and death are intruders that show, they show, they demonstrate that the world is broken. They demonstrate that it's not the way it should be. And we should feel the weight of that. We should feel that things are not the way they should be. We should, we should experience grief and sorrow at the death of a loved one. It's right that we groan, as Paul is going to say in a few more verses. Because death is not good. It's the enemy. Christ comes into the world to conquer death once and for all. And yes, as Christians, we're supposed to be joyful. We're called to be joyful, rejoice. And we have a great hope, which we're looking forward to, which we're going to be getting to in just a minute. But if we don't recognize and pay attention to and give credit to the fact that the world is struggling under the curse, then we're not going to respond properly to pain and suffering when we encounter it in our own lives or the lives of other people. We're not going to be able to help others or have the right mindset ourselves if we just treat it flippantly. But all of this wrongness, the bondage to corruption, that's not the ultimate truth. It's not the end of the story. Verse 20 says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That is God. God subjected the creation to futility in the curse. In hope. Creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There, there's the children of God again, the sons of God. So why is it that the creation is waiting, eager, longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, to begin with, we saw man's sins, mankind, fall, leads to the curse and this bondage to corruption, the futility. So in the same way, when man is redeemed, this leads to the lifting of the curse and freedom from bondage, right? This is clear, it's vital, but I think if we dig a little deeper, we can see a little bit more of a full picture than that. If we go back to Genesis, back to the fall, back before the fall, God creates man in his image and man is charged with dominion over the creation. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them, that is mankind, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind is given dominion rule over the creation. And he's to represent God, represent his authority, God's authority over the created order, right? So man is essentially serving as a king or ruler, right? There's, Adam is presented as a sort of king over the creation. And he's to have dominion on behalf of God, but as we saw, Adam rebels against God, sins, and so instead of representing God's rule for the good of creation, man has rebelled, resulting in the fall of creation. So if we go back to Romans 8, creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And that language, sons of God, is important. It carries implications. Implications of kingship, dominion. The kings of Israel are called sons of God, especially David. And ultimately that points forward to Christ, culminating in his final rule. But the kings are called the sons of God. If you go to Psalm 2, he says, you are my son. This is God speaking to the king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ultimately, this points forward to Christ. Christ is the son of God. But before it gets to Christ, it's speaking of David as the king and his sons after him. The son of God is language of kingship. So verse 19 says the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21 the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So freedom comes from, the freedom of creation comes from the glory of the children of God. The glorification, the revelation of the glory of the children of God leads to the freedom of creation. That is, when the sons of God are revealed. This is redeemed mankind, led by Christ, the firstborn son, led by Christ, the, the last Adam, right? The, who is restored, is re going to be restoring the proper place of mankind, dominion over the creation, with Jesus himself, the, the one 
man who has truly represented God, fulfilled the proper role of humanity, he will be reigning as the risen and exalted king. And we, the children of God, the sons of God, will reign with him. All right, 2 Timothy 2, Revelation 22, both talk about us, the redeemed, the people of God, reigning with Christ. And this is good news for the creation. When the, when the proper king is in charge, the land, the people, the country flourishes. All right, I, I think of... Um, you know, the stories of Robin Hood and King Richard is off. Um, he's disappeared and the, the bad King John is in charge and it's not good. And the people are suffering because of it and they're longing for the return of King Richard, the Lionheart, to come back and set everything right. All right, so like that, the creation has been without the proper dominion over it. Satan has received a measure of dominion over the world temporarily. He's defeated by Christ at the cross, but the world is still suffering under the curse until the revealing of the sons of God when they reign in glory with their king. Going on to verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For now, the world experiences pain and suffering and death. But it's not empty suffering. It's not pointless suffering. Paul uses the image of the pains of childbirth. It's like a woman in labor about to give birth. And that's significant because labor pains lead somewhere. Not all pain has the same significance. There's a difference between the pain I feel if I break my arm and the pain of a woman in labor, of childbirth. If I break my arm, that hurts. And it doesn't give me, get me anywhere. It doesn't bring me any good result, generally. But the pain of a woman in labor is different. The pain leads to the joy of a child being brought into the world. The joy which outlasts and outweighs the pain that brought it. You see the significance of Paul's illustration here. The futility of creation is not empty. It's leading somewhere. It's leading to the glory that is to come. Right? And it's not just the creation that groans. He says, we groan too as Christians. Right? Paul couldn't be more clear about this. Right? He says, not only the creation, but we, 
ourselves, and just in case we didn't get who we ourselves are, he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? So this is us Christians. We suffer along with the rest of creation. Right? So some people will try to say otherwise, your word of faith, prosperity, preacher people will say, if, you know, Christ has conquered, Christ has defeated sin, he's defeated death, he's defeated pain, he's taken it, and we don't have to feel that anymore if we just have enough faith. And yes, Christ has defeated death at the cross. He's taken our pain. He's taken our shame along with our sin so that we don't have to bear it. But we don't experience the fullness of that victory now in the present time. It's this idea of the kingdom is already here and it's not yet here, right? Christ has already won the victory over sin and death at the cross. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's, the kingdom is here. He's ruling in glory. And at the same time, we're waiting for his coming to establish his kingdom on earth in all the fullness. And we experience the same already not yet thing going on in our experience of salvation, right? If we go to verse 15, it says, we have received by the Spirit the adoption as sons. And yet, at the same time, verse 23, we eagerly await the adoption as sons, right? It says we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the harvest is the the first gathering of the harvest, the first bits, And the first fruits of the harvest shows that the harvest is coming, right? It's starting to arrive. And it shows what the harvest is ultimately going to be like. But it's not the fullness of the harvest. All right, in the same way, the Spirit is the first fruits of our redemption, of our salvation. It's the seal and the guarantee of our salvation. In Him, in the Spirit, we have received already many of the benefits of salvation. Without even leaving this chapter, we can see a number of the benefits of the Spirit that we receive, the benefits of salvation that we receive by the Spirit, right? Verse two, he set us free from the law of sin and death. Verse four, he causes us to walk in such a way that we fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. Verse six, we get He gives us life and peace. Verse 9, he dwells in us. Verse 13, he empowers us to put to death the wicked deeds of the body. That's our our sinful flesh. He, He leads us, verse 14. He's connected to adoption in verse 15. He communicates to us that we are sons of God, verse 16. Verse 26, he helps us in our weakness. Verse 27, he intercedes for us. And yet at the same time, we haven't received the fullness of our salvation. Verse 11, he, the Spirit, raised Christ from the dead, and he will, in the future, raise our mortal bodies. And in the meantime, we groan along with the rest of the creation. We experience the labor pains of creation. 
the suffering which leads to glory. All right, if we look at a, a couple more verses here and, and a couple other places, we can see that the suffering and the glory, it's not separate. It's not just these two things that we weigh against each other just that aren't really connected. The suffering leads to the glory. It even brings about the glory. Right? The suffering is necessary to the glory. If you go back just a couple verses to verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The glorification is contingent on the suffering. If we go back a little further in chapter 5, starting in verse 3, says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the end of verse 2. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If we go to 2 Corinthians 4. Starting in verse 7, I'm going to read 7 through 11, and then I'm going to skip over to 16 through 18. But we, Christians, believers, have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Jumping to verse 16. Sorry, I was going to read 11 too. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jumping to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us, preparing for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And that's not necessarily contrasting visible versus invisible. It's things that we've seen now versus things that we have not seen yet. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We suffer now and will continue to suffer and experience difficulty, distress, and pain, sorrow, and grief. But it doesn't break us. It doesn't cast us down, destroy us. But it is in the difficulty, in the sorrow, and pain, and grief, and even in death, we're being made more like Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God. The suffering leads to the glory. But we haven't yet received the glory. Right? The last two verses, 24 and 25 of our passage. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope here and throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament especially, is stronger than the way we typically use the word hope. Right? We say, I hope that such and such will happen. I hope I get a raise. I hope my vacation goes well. I hope I catch something when I'm fishing. Right? We use the word in that way quite a bit. And when we use it that way, it's very uncertain. Right? It might happen. It might not happen. I hope it happens. It'd be nice. But it might not. Right? It's uncertain. But here and throughout the scriptures, hope is confident expectation. We hope for what we know that we're going to receive. Our hope is based on the unchangeable faithfulness of God. And that hope will not be disappointed. Paul says, in this hope, we were saved, right? Our salvation, this is the, the point of our salvation is this future hope, right? If we hope in this time only, we're to be pitied, right? If Christ is not raised, if we're not going to be raised, then what's the point? Right? But we have a future hope, a confident expectation. In the future fullness of our salvation, in glory with Christ forever. We don't have it yet. That's the nature of hope, right? He says, who hopes for what he sees? Right? If you see it, if you have it, it's not hope. It's, some, it's a possession. You have it already. But we hope for what we do not see, right? The, the eternal things that are coming. And because of that, because of our confidence in it, because we know that it's coming, we wait for it with patience. Verse 25. Patience and then the knowledge that the, the difficulty of what we see now is bringing us the glorious hope, the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's our hope, our ultimate redemption, our resurrection following Christ. It's beautifully described, this hope, if we turn to Revelations, Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the, the restored, the renewed heaven and earth. Right? The, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
This is the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is the, the, the create, what the creation is longing for and it, anticipating and groaning for. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Reign with Christ in the restored creation with God and the Lamb as the center, right? That's what ultimately makes it good. What makes it worth looking forward to is that God is at the center. He will be their God with them as their God. They will see his face. That's the hope that we have to look forward to. Let's finish up by summing up Paul's argument from this passage. But this time let's turn it around and work from the basis up to the conclusion rather than backwards the way the passage presents it. So it goes something like this. We believe in, in Christ. We who believe in Christ, that is. And all creation with us experience suffering now in the present time, but in hope in confident expectation of the final redemption of our bodies. Therefore, because of that hope, because of that expectation, we and the whole creation with us experience the suffering as the labor pains which prepare for and bring us to that hope. And so we look forward with eager longing expectation to that great glory when we will reign over a new renewed creation together with Christ the son of God the firstborn of many brothers and therefore take all that together because of all of that we can confidently say that the sufferings which we experience now are not worth comparing with the glory that we expect in the future. These light momentary sufferings, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, right? it doesn't feel light and momentary in the moment, but we know compared to the eternal glory, the light momentary sufferings don't even register on the scale. Right? It's not even worth using the same scale compared to the eternal glory and joy that is to come. This is our sure and certain hope that we have in Christ and nothing can take it away from us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. We glorify you because you are You are righteous, you are holy, you are glorious. And Lord, you have prepared for us glory beyond what we could imagine, beyond what we can think. We have hope, we have a confident expectation of that glory, but even now we don't see the fullness of what it will be. Lord, and now in the present time, we experience suffering, we groan, we long for the time when there will be no suffering and no groaning, when we will be raised to life with Christ, our King. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and endurance in the present time in the difficulty, that even as we feel the weight of it, the reality of the fact that the world is not as it should be, or that you would give us the eyes of faith to see the things that are not yet seen, the eternal things, that we might live in that confident expectation and eager longing for the things to come in such a way that the the sufferings we feel now would be recognized as light and momentary. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.